John 15. Today we're going to talk um, and wrap up that series on the soul. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about identifying the anatomy of our souls. We define the soul, as the scriptures define it, as the composite of who you are. It's this uh, makeup of your will, your body, and your mind. And we spent a few weeks just addressing that and, and recognizing the anatomy of our soul. And then over the last two weeks, we've been talking about what does it look like to repair our souls, to renew our souls. Um, if you've walked through any amount of life whatsoever, you know that life can be hard, right? You know that things can happen and they can kind of whittle away at who you are. And Jesus, his design for you is that you would be made whole. And the deepest part of who you are in your soul that he would put you back together again. But this week we're going to look at sort of a new thing. And we're going to look at what does it look like to actually grow in your soul. It's a different question that we're asking. And as I dug deep into this question, one of the things I realized is I could literally write 30 weeks worth of messages on this topic alone. But we don't have 30 weeks, we have 30 minutes, right? So I decided this morning we were going to have a little bit of fun. Everybody okay with that? We're going to have a little bit of fun? Okay, cool. So we are going to ask the question, what does it look like for us to grow in our souls? And we're going to examine three different things that we see through scripture and creation. Um, we're going to look at gardening, physics, and friendship in order to answer that question. Are you cool with that? Great. So John chapter 15, we are going to talk about what does it look like to grow in our souls by looking at a story or a picture or analogy that Jesus uses about gardening. John chapter 15, one, verse 1 says this, I am the vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus is at the end of his life. And there's a few chapters in the end of the book of John where Jesus gathers his disciples and sort of right before he's about to be executed on the cross, he has some things that he wants to share with them. So you can imagine for Jesus and for his disciples, this is a very intimate and personal moment. If you had just a few things that you could say to the people you were closest to on earth, that is sort of the picture that we're getting here. Jesus has a couple things that he really, really, really wants to hit home with his disciples. And the first thing he says is this, is that God, our Father in heaven, is like a gardener. I'm like, okay, Jesus, come on, help me out here. God is like a gardener. And you, you are like a branch on a vine. And God, the gardener, our Father in heaven, is a God who prunes us in order for us to produce fruit. Now, what is he talking about? Well, here's the deal. I am um, not an expert on gardening. In fact, everything, literally everything, except for the one plant in my house that I have that I currently haven't killed, but everything that I've tried to grow in my life as a plant, I've killed. I'm hoping this one's different, right? In fact, in my office, every plant in my office is fake because I cannot keep a plant alive. I have no skill in gardening, but this is what I know about pruning. I know that in order for a plant to reach its full potential, it has to be pruned. Now, what is pruning? Plants just tend to grow towards light and energy. 
They tend to move towards things that would sustain them and help them reach their potential. The problem is, is that they have nothing, if they have nothing guiding them, they're going to just shoot off all over the place. So in this analogy, we're talking about grapevines. And if you've ever seen a grapevine grow, they grow in all sorts of different directions. Some of those vines, as they grow, the branches shoot off of them and they produce very, very weak fruit, if no fruit whatsoever. So it's important for the gardener to come and to clip off those pieces that are kind of sucking the life off of the rest of the vine in order for the vine to reach its full potential of harvest. That is the way God relates to us. God enters into our life and into our story not to cut away and take good things away from us as much as helping direct our life, our trajectory, and our story to what's absolutely, totally best for us. His design is that we would reach the life that he truly has made for us. Now, in order for our souls to grow, we have to be willing to enter into seasons of pruning. And pruning, seasons of pruning, are all about change. See, growth of our souls require pruning, and pruning being about change means that you and I have to change our perspective on change. You and I have to develop a whole different way of seeing the C word, change. Now, change in itself isn't evil, bad, or wrong. In fact, it is part of God's good creation. If you don't believe me, Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 says this, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Hivila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, oftentimes when I read this passage, I'll just confess with you, it's one of those things that just feels out of place. If you've ever read the narrative in Genesis, it's like God created this and God did that and then God put man in the garden and then, oh, by the way, here are all these names of these rivers, right? And there's some garden and then there's some stones, like gold and different things like that. Oh, and then right back to the narrative, God put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. It almost seems like it's a detour and for so many years of my life, I looked at this passage and I honestly just ignored it because I didn't know what to do with it, which is never a good thing to do with the Bible, by the way, but that is what I did. But as I dove into this, one of the things that I realized is that in the beginning, God did not intend the world to stay the same. See, what is needed to sustain life? Food, fresh water, okay, that's, that's just to sustain life. But now we're introduced to all of these raw materials of the earth that in and of themselves are beautiful but they're there so that humanity can pick them up, fashion them into something, and create a world. It's potential more than anything. God births a world full of opportunity and potential, and he calls humanity to inhabit that world and to take the story someplace. Which means that long before sin, long before evil and the fall, change was a part of God's creation, and it is a good 
like I said, we have to fundamentally change and shift our way of seeing change. Now, God, he has woven this truth into his very creation. And this is what I mean. When I look at my children, I see this principle at work, that they are constantly changing. I have a six-month-old, a two-year-old, and a five-year-old. My house is chaos sometimes, right? My six-month-old just started crawling, and we have like two flights of stairs. I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. These three little humans are running around constantly. And one of the things that I, real, I say all the time is that I ask our kids, and I'm kind of joking, but I ask them, I hope you never grow up. Will you always stay little? Now, the truth is, is that's incredibly cruel both to them and to me and my wife, Right? We want them to grow, we want them to develop, we want them to reach their full potential as human beings. And the reality is, is that when I look at my kids, I just see every single day something new is happening. Some new milestone is achieved, some, some new ground has been taken, and that is because we were created to grow. I told you I was gonna talk to you about physics. Sir Isaac Newton, he observed in the universe that there are principles that govern growth in our universe. He came up with his three laws of motion, right? The first one is this, that an object that is in motion stays in motion, and an object at rest doesn't go anywhere at all. It stays put, right? In order for something to grow, it has to change, it has to move. In order for that change to happen, Newton realized that force has to be applied on that object. Something has to literally propel it or accelerate it. And the heavier that thing is, the more force that has to come behind it to move it. And then his last law is this, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Meaning that once you take a step forward, once you start moving down a certain path or certain direction, there are ramifications, both good and maybe not so good if the, if the decision you made was bad. Again, I'm going to tell you another thing about how we see these principles at play in the universe. In 1925, Edwin Hubble looked up into the sky. In a telescope, he saw that the universe is continually expanding. That what we thought was maybe the edge of the universe has now continued to be pushed out and moved on. Why does that matter? Because our God is still at work creating new things. Our God is still at work taking new ground. Our God is still at work changing the universe and the world outside of us. What's my point? Change is constant. It's a part of life that will happen whether you want it to happen or not. And in order for you to grow in your soul, you have to, have to, have to change your perspective on change. Now I get it. It's easy for me to say that. Because I am one of the rare, like, 2% of people in the world who loves change. I'm the person that you all think is annoying because you say, ah, I don't want that to change. And I'm like, let's see what happens, right? I'm an Enneagram 7. If you know anything about that, it's called the enthusiast. My glass is half full. I'm always excited. It's always going to work out. I'm terrible at the details. But it is going to work out, and it's all going to be okay. And so... I have a certain orientation towards change that I know is easier for me than it is for maybe other people. And while I enjoy the ride, there is something that I've learned about myself, but I also think it's, it's applicable to everybody, and that's that in order to change our mindset about change, we have to overcome 
our fear of it. See, the reality is, is that fear about the future is the antithesis of faith. We are called to be people of faith, which means we are called to trust in God. That's what faith is. It is trust in God, and it is experienced right here in the present, but it is always orientated towards the future. What am I saying? I'm saying this, that God never calls us to find our identity in our past. He calls us to remember our past, but he calls us to remember it for a specific reason, and that's this, remember his faithfulness in our past. See, one of the most repeated commands through the entirety of scripture is remember. And it's not because he wants the people to live back then, it's because he wants them to remember that the God who was faithful to deliver his people way back then is faithful to meet you in your present and he is providing a better future. This is the reality of the God that we serve. And if our souls are ever going to grow, and if our life is ever going to count, then we cannot be afraid of a pruning season. John 15 continues on. Back to our gardening analogy. Verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you might bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If I could summarize the last three verses, it would be this. If we want to grow in our souls, we must stay connected to Jesus. Jesus tells this picture, this analogy again, of what happens when a branch on a vine falls off and hits the ground. We over-spiritualize, I think, what Jesus is trying to say here. We add a bunch of theology onto it. I think Jesus is just being very practical and simple in this particular teaching. And that's, what he's trying to say is this, is that when a branch falls off a tree and hits the ground, it's no longer capable to produce its fruit that it was created for. Literally, the only purpose that it has now is to be thrown into the fire. Right? Again, don't theologize that to some extreme. His point is simple, that you will never reach your purpose or your potential in life. You will never experience the fullness and healing of your soul apart from the vine. You must stay connected to your source of life. And Jesus says that he is your source of life. In fact, you can't do anything apart from him. So the question then moves on to say this, um, why? Why is that the case? Why is it that Jesus says we the only way we can experience wholeness in our souls, the only way we can step into our purpose and our meaning in our life, the only way we can even produce fruit is be connected to Jesus? Why? Well, Genesis gives us a glimpse into the answer to that as well. In Genesis 3 verse 8, we read this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Picture the scene. God is walking through the garden. 
And he walks to the same place that he always meets his friends. And they're not there. It's like the rhythm, the routine of their relationship together is that God would come in the cool of the day and clearly Adam is familiar with God's arrival onto the scene and yet they're nowhere to be found. What happens? Well, God has invited Adam and Eve into this loving, trusting relationship with them and Adam and Eve have chosen to reject God and choose their own path. That willful rejection of God separated them from God's plan, purpose, and destiny for their life, and it began to disintegrate their souls. The passage literally goes on to say that he um, willfully walked away from the plans of God, right? We talked about our soul being our will. He experienced the emotions of fear and shame. That's a part of our soul. And then he physically hid, again, part of our soul, our bodies, And so the very first thing we see as we walk away from what we were created for, which is to be in step and walk with the creator of the universe, is a disintegrated soul. We see right here and there that we were created to be connected to Jesus. That's why your life apart from him will never produce fruit. That's why your soul will never be made whole, why you will never grow unless you are connected to Jesus. Because as a human being, you were created to be in step with the creator. Now when I say in step, I literally mean in step. I literally mean on a walk. I literally mean in a relationship with the creator of the universe. And that's actually where Jesus continues here. He continues in John chapter 15 to talk about what does it look like to be in a relationship with God. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, that, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is the command, love each other. Jesus calls us his friends. And growth in our souls can only happen within the context of this friendship. Sandy Miller, who is an Anglican bishop in his 80s, he's a man who loves Jesus, loves people, has been in ministry for like 60 years, filled with God's Holy Spirit. He's the kind of person, whenever you see him, you can just tell that he spent time with Jesus. Um, I've never met him, but I've been in the same environment, same room with him, and I've heard him speak, and he said something one time that absolutely shook me to my core. This is what he said. 
I meet quite a few people who want Jesus as their savior, but not many who want Jesus as their friend. It shook me because I realized that I actually struggle relating to Jesus as my friend. And here's why. It's because I actually have a hard time with friendships in general in my life, and I think I'm not alone. I think most of us know that it, friendships can be hard, they can be challenging, but then on another level, my whole life, I've, I've sort of imagined Jesus as my God, as my Savior, as my Lord and King, as my baptizer in the Holy Spirit. I've sort of envisioned this God who is way up there, and I am way down here, but when he uses the term friend, all of a sudden it does this strange thing where it brings us on the same playing field. I have a lot of great friends in my life that I look up to, that I admire, that I respect, but there are no power dynamics in my good friendships, meaning nobody's in charge in my friendship relationships. That would not be a healthy friendship. See, I can only imagine that the disciples themselves are wrestling with this exact same thing because they've been following Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the rabbi, they've called him teacher. Now all of a sudden, Jesus completely flips the script on them and calls them his friends? See, this is the reality about Jesus' friendship with us is that it does not demean him. It does not bring him down to be friends with us. All it does is elevate us to be friends with him. And that's the nature of the God that we serve. He isn't the kind of God that wants to step on you or squash you or harm you. He's the kind of God that wants to lift you up and give you dignity and purpose and value. Those are the kind of friends that you would chase after, that you would lay your life down for. That's the kind of friend that Jesus is. I want to share three thoughts about the kind of friend that Jesus is. And then I want to share five things about how to grow your friendship with Jesus that will also correlate to the growth of your own soul. Three things about Jesus as the kind of friend. This is the kind of friend Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the kind of friend you can always pick up wherever you left off. How many of you have, you don't have to raise your hand, but just, you know, in your head, you have those friends where you haven't talked to or spoken to for years, and then you see them and it's like, there it is. It's easy. You pick up right where you left off from. Jesus is that kind of friend. Jesus is the kind of friend where relationship, it, he, he is always there to enter into a friendship and a relationship with you. And here's the deal. Some of you have been running away from Jesus for a really long time. Some of you have literally left his friendship behind. And maybe you're feeling shame about that. Maybe you're concerned or hurt or worried about that. Hear the good news. You can pick up from wherever you left off. That's the thing about Jesus is that he's the kind of friend that isn't going to hold that against you, but he is going to enter back into friendship with you as quickly and soon as he can, as long as you're willing. Jesus is also a safe friend. That's one of the things that I think personally has been most transformative in my life. Safe friendships, man, they're a dime a dozen. They're hard to find. People that you know you can pour your whole soul out to and you're safe. But beyond that, they're for you. They're not going to slander you or use your words against you. Jesus is a safe friend. And there's something about the ability to enter into relationships with people that are safe that allows your soul to just be at rest. 
Those are the moments when the things that are also tumultuous inside of you, they allow to kind of get this harmony and peace in them because you were able to process with someone who is safe. Jesus is that kind of friend. Jesus is the kind of friend that's with you when things are hard and when things are great. This last summer, I shared with you a few weeks ago that in complications with pregnancy, I almost lost my wife. We were in the hospital for 10 days, and over that duration of 10 days, it was a wild, absolute wild ride. It's all over the map emotionally and exhausted physically and just so thankful that we are where we are. My wife's okay. But I remember coming back out of that world and kind of entering back into church life and friends and all these things, and there was a common thread of question that people would ask me all the time. Were you mad at God? Now, here's the deal. I've been mad at God in my life many times. And I think that scriptures actually give us permission in our authenticity to express our frustrations to God. I don't think that's bad or wrong. But what I do know is that when I was in the hospital for 10 days, watching my wife fight for her life, never once in my mind was I mad at God. And here's why. Because he showed up. Because he was right there. Because every other one of my friends who did an amazing job trying to take care of me ran out of energy, time, resources, but Jesus never did. And Jesus never will. And that isn't to say that my friends weren't good friends and they weren't trying to be there for me, but it's to say that Jesus is a true and better friend than anyone else. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, You may not even realize that you have the presence of the creator of the universe who wants to be in it with you. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever's going on, Jesus wants to be that kind of friend in your story. One more thing. You can actually grow closer to Jesus. In essence, your love and your friendship can actually deepen. It's become a um, a little tradition in my home that whenever I'm speaking in any way, shape, or form, my oldest daughter wants me to run down the whole sermon with her at bedtime the night before. (laughs) And so, you know, I figure if my five-year-old doesn't understand what I'm talking about, then no one here will either. So it's probably good practice to kind of get it out. And so she's always my first test subject. So I started running through some of this stuff with her, and we laughed and all that. And by the very end, I asked a very dangerous question. Do you understand what I'm saying? And she looked at me, and she said, you know what? I think so, Dad, because when you're a baby, you know Jesus like this. But then when you get bigger, like your Isla's age, or you're two, you know Jesus like this. And then when you're five, like me, you know Jesus like this. <laughs> and then when you grow up like a mommy and daddy, you probably know Jesus even more like this. I think she's right. (laughs) You know, maybe not necessarily chronological in our age, but I think that's the sort of progression that our friendship with Jesus can look like. And the thing is, is that some of you may feel like you are at the very, very infantile stage of your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you feel like you've been stuck there for a really long time, and I pray today is a breakthrough for you. I pray that today some of the things we've talked about will help you take steps forward. I pray today that Some of what we're talking about will bring healing to your soul and allow you to take some steps forward. But the truth is, is that Jesus actually wants you to grow in your relationship with him. He actually wants you to deepen your relationship with him. 
and time and intentionality will do that. So let's get super practical. Let's talk about five things that can grow your soul and deepen your friendship with Jesus. And then we'll wrap up by taking communion together. Number one is prayer. By the way, this list is not going to like blow your mind, okay? It's really not. It's not like some crazy, high, profound, you know, wordy thing. It's very simple. But in pastoring people for 11 years, I can tell you that the simple things are often the hardest things for us to do. And prayer is one of those. Um, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that they were a bad prayer. Do you know there's no such thing? Actually, there is. A bad prayer is someone who fakes everything. No. A good prayer, just a prayer, is an honest conversation with God. You need no eloquence. You don't even have to fully know what you're talking about yet. It's about communicating with the creator of the universe. And when I say communicating, it's a two-way street. Just as you're learning to talk to him, you're also learning to hear his voice. Because as we've seen through the scriptures, in fact, the scriptures themselves attest to this reality, God wants to speak to you. He wants you to know his will. He wants you to know his plans. He wants you to know his purposes in life. He wants you to be in relationship with him just like you would be with any other person in your life. Only get this, it's, exp it's exponentially better than any other human relationship you can have. And prayer is sort of the key that unlocks that door because at every most foundational level of every relationship, the most important thing is communication. And truly, prayer is that. It is communicating with the creator of the universe. However you choose to do it, you know, the New Testament says pray at all times. It says pray never cease. It's this idea that literally every breath in and every breath out can actually be a prayer to the creator of the universe. It doesn't have to be at dinner time, lunch time, and breakfast, although it can. It can be in any sphere and space of your life. In fact, I would argue that the best prayers of my life don't come in the moments when I'm concentrating on praying. They come in the moments of everyday normal stuff in life. Communicate with the creator. Number two, worship. I grew up around church. I wouldn't say that I grew up really in church because I wasn't really involved. I'd show up occasionally and kind of sit in the back, put a hat on, whatever. Um, but I grew up around church. And so when I heard the term worship, my thought was always this, that it's singing. It's that like 15 to 20 minute window of time in the beginning of a church service. That's worship. But the truth is the Bible teaches us something very different, that worship is a posture of our entire life. Worship is... Um, in, in, in being a posture of our entire life, it's the way we view everything that we do. It's a choice that no matter whether we're tying our shoes or taking a deep breath or working or, or drinking a cup of coffee, that we're going to do these things unto the Lord. We're going to be mindful and thoughtful of him in the process. Worship is this heart posture and orientation that God is attentively involved in every facet of my life. When we sing, it's really just a cathartic expression of our emotions and a declaration of the things that are happening in our life and saying, God, yes. But worship is everything in your life. Worship is every facet of your life. And when you understand it that way, it changes the way you navigate through your life and it grows your soul. Devotion. <laughs> this is another term that I didn't like a lot. Um, my devotional time with the Lord 
I never liked that because it always felt like every other time I was saying in my life wasn't devoted to God. I always wrestled with those, that language, but the truth of the matter is, is that I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, the idea of having time where I'm devoted to the, the scriptures and learning what God would speak to me and to let that renew and rewire my mind and in doing so, change and shape my soul is important. And I can't tell you how many people I've run into over the course of years, myself included actually in this, that has is, that is sort of had... Um, that has sort of kind of pushed this time maybe out of my life because I didn't feel like it or because it felt forced or because I wasn't getting anything out of it or it wasn't as exciting as it used to be. But the truth is, is in any relationship, you're going to run into those walls, right? Like the most meaningful relationships in my life, they've, they've come to a point where I'm no longer feeling as excited as I once was. And it's a good thing that I didn't just decide, nah, I'm done, I'm going to close it up, we'll come back another day. The reality is that there are times and seasons in our life where we push into that. And I actually would argue that that's those moments when we push past what we feel and push into what we know is right and true and good, those are the greatest moments of growth in our souls because our relationship is now maturing beyond our feelings. Next, and two more, um, and they're, they're connected Community and solitude. When Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches, think about it. You're not the only branch on the vine. Good thing. It doesn't produce a lot of grapes if it's just you. You're actually connected into this intricate network of billions of other people who name the name of Jesus. Christianity Following Jesus is not a solo sport. You actually can't do it by yourself. In fact, you can't grow without one another. 100% necessary. God did not save you into a vacuum. He saved you into a family, into a community, and into a movement. He rescued you to be a part of his kingdom, which means there's other subjects in his kingdom too, other friends of Jesus. You cannot grow if you do this by yourself. And sometimes by yourself looks like you have no other Christian friendships in your life. You maybe have other friends, but this would be, you have no other Christian friends, people that are helping you grow and come to know and love Jesus. And again, part of how we connect with Jesus is we connect with Jesus' people. And if you want to grow in your soul, you have to spend time with other followers of Jesus. You have to be intentional about that. You have to get involved and engaged. When Pastor Brad says there's middle schoolers who are yearning for people who are seasoned in their life just to show up and be present with them, show up and be present with them. You don't have to have a PhD to do that. You just have to be there. And God tends to work both in you and in them when you do so. And then the last thing is solitude. Here's the deal about solitude is it isn't really about being alone although I know that's what solitude means, being alone. But it's about being with God alone. That's very different. You need community, and you experience something about God um, exclusively through the community of God, but you also need to learn to be alone, to silence the you know, endless notifications on your phone, to pull yourself away from the noise and the busyness of life, and to be with God. My wife and I know this, we've learned this about each other, that we can sort of sense 
when we haven't spent time one-on-one together. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, we need, but call it a date night, call it just a night where we can look each other in the eyes and talk. We need that intentional time because that's healthy relationship. We need that. We're busy in life. We have little kids and all these other things we have to do. And it can be really easy to just go through the motions and forget that we actually need to tend to our relationship as well. So I would encourage you, if it's not a part of your normal rhythm of life, it isn't a part of how you live, take time to experience solitude. Now, all of these things are going to change your soul. They're going to give you the opportunity to grow. Foundationally, they're going to give you the chance to grow in your friendship with Jesus, and he's going to be the one that helps your soul grow. But ultimately, this would only and is only possible because of one thing, and Jesus has already said it in John 15, and it's this. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This morning, we're going to have the chance to take communion together. And as we come to the tables this morning, um, we're reminded of the reality that our souls would continue to be disintegrated pulled apart and not be able to be made whole unless Jesus did this very thing, laid his life down for us, for his friends. So church, would you do me a favor? Would you stand? Would you make your way around the room? There's tables all over the place. Grab the bread, grab the cup. We're gonna worship together and then we're gonna come and take the cup and the bread together.